Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Thursday, November 7th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, with Republicans gaining control of every statewide office, we're asking the question, can a Democrat ever win a major office in Mississippi? And we'll take a look at the latest March of Dimes report card. Then the newest version of a troubled Emmett Till historical marker is already drawing the wrong kind of attention. And what's at the intersection of Memory Lane and Sesame Street? This week's book club, of course. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi Republicans are strengthening their dominance by winning all eight statewide elected offices in Tuesday's election. MPB's Desiree Frazier takes a look at what it means for Democrats. Mississippi's election results show there are red counties that are majority white and voted Republican in Tuesday's election and blue counties that are predominantly black and voted Democrat. Professor Andre Ori is with Jackson State University. He says there are more red states. So, in the governor's race, Republican Lieutenant Governor Tate Reeves garnered more votes than Democratic Attorney General Jim Hood. Ori says there's a racial divide in Mississippi politics. Majority white counties went red for Reeves, and there were four counties that went to Hood. Two of them were in college counties, which were Mississippi State and the University of Mississippi and two of them were almost easily, evenly divided with African-Americans and whites. So this was about as racially polarized of an election that we can see here in the state. Ori says Hood campaigned as a moderate, hoping to gain the support of more white voters, but it didn't work. He says to win statewide office, Democrats should put forth progressive candidates and aggressively pursue black voters because of their loyalty to the party. He says progressive whites will vote Democrat as well. State Republican Party Chair Lucian Smith says their conservative values resonate with voters. That's why they won statewide elections. He says they hope to draw blacks to the party and recently held an event in Jackson. Uh, The national outreach director spoke, and it was a packed house of uh, African-American. Some of them were affirmative public Republicans. Uh, Some of them were conservatives who were interested in the party, and some of them were folks who just uh, showed up to listen. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that. Republicans also hold a supermajority in the Mississippi House and Senate. Desiree Frazier, MPB News. In other news, last year in Mississippi, 14.2 percent of all births were premature. That means babies are being born too early before the 37th week of pregnancy. That's just one of the details contained in this year's March of Dimes report card. We're joined by Stacy D. Stewart, president and CEO of the March of Dimes. She says the problem of premature births and other childbearing problems are not just in Mississippi. They're nationwide. I think one of the troubling things about our uh, March Downs report card this year, we traditionally have looked almost solely at premature birth. We really now are looking at the health of all moms and all babies. And one of the things that we find is that the United States is the most dangerous developed nation in which to give birth. And there certainly are pockets in this country uh, that ha- are, are more challenged than others. Uh, Mississippi, as you may know, has, has had a 
long-time challenge around these issues of maternal and infant health, and we're seeing the rates get even worse around premature birth in this country nationally. This is the fourth year in a row of an increase in premature birth, and we're seeing an increase in Mississippi as well from 13.6% last year now up to 14.2% across the whole state. But we also see pockets where it's even worse, like, for example, in the city of Jackson where the rates are 17.3%, and that puts uh, Mississippi and some parts of the state as some of the um, most uh, affected, negatively affected areas in the whole country with respect to maternal and infant health. What accounts for that across the country and the significant increase in Mississippi? Well, one of the things that the March Times has been doing is uh, really doing a lot of research to really understand better the underlying causes of premature birth. But we do know, even though we don't know all the causes of premature birth, we do know that there are some things that increase the risk of women having uh, challenges during their pregnancy, potentially leading to a premature birth, or even impacting their health overall uh, with uh, maternal death or maternal uh, morbidity really being severely sick as a result of of, uh, pregnancy and childbirth. We, we absolutely know that a lack of access to adequate, affordable, high-quality care is one of the leading causes that is increasing the risk of too many women having babies that are born too sick and too soon. Um, and we also know that uh, all women are not affected the same by some of these issues. Black women in Mississippi are 44% higher, have a higher rate of premature birth as compared to white women. But we also know that in rural areas, that often lack access to high-quality uh, and affordable care that don't have sufficient uh, institutions, organizations, or health care providers uh, in, in the communities where women live, that can also put women's lives and the baby's lives at risk. So we have to look at different ways of providing care. We know Mississippi has not uh, adopted Medicaid expansion for women, and we know the state's that have adopted Medicaid expansion, that have expanded Medicaid, are seeing significantly more improvement in maternal and infant health. Let me interrupt for a second. I want to interrupt and ask you this. Mississippi leads the country, or at least is very nearly leading the country, in obesity and diabetes and heart disease. Might those factors play a part in your figures? We, we think that actually uh, women that are have chronic health challenges before they're pregnant absolutely can factor into um, their poor birth outcomes. But what we would say is that it's very difficult for women to manage their health if they had, don't have access to insurance to cover medical visits. And so by not adopting Medicaid expansion, it actually is negatively impacting uh, those outcomes, and it's actually affecting women's ability to be healthy even before they're pregnant. If women are able to see doctors and get adequate health care, they can actually manage some of those chronic health conditions, which actually will improve their health outcomes and their babies as well. Is there a, or or can a lack of education awareness play a part? You know, some women, I'm sure, younger women think, okay, I'm pregnant and I'm going to give birth in nine months, not realizing the care they need up to that point. Absolutely. Expanding education and awareness is absolutely important. Um, and we need to make sure that women have educa- are well-educated and well-informed. But none of that education and information matters if, if health care providers aren't available to them, if they don't have insurance available to them. So all the, all the education information in the world won't overcome the, uh, a, a woman's inability to pay for her coverage, to pay for her health care. That has to be at the, at the core of how we solve these issues. 
we do want women to be more empowered. We want them to be better informed about these issues. But that's not the only answer. There's no silver bullet answer these, to these challenges. It needs to be an all-in approach, and we need all of the partners, state and local, state and local elected officials, health care providers, women themselves and families, to all be working together to, to solve some of these challenges. Short of Medicaid expansion, is there anything else that could make a noticeable significant change? You know, what I would say is that there are certain interventions that can make a big difference. For example, we're working at the, at the March of Dimes on a form of group prenatal care um, that can actually reduce the risk of preterm birth. It provides a level of support for women to have healthier pregnancies. There, there are other options like telemedicine and access to other health care providers like doulas and midwives that we know can reach women where they are. We have to be willing to look at alternative forms of care and uh, to make accommodations when we need to. And when we think about the cost of these issues around premature birth, it costs us a lot to do nothing about these issues. So we, we sometimes look at the cost of expanding care, but we don't often look at what it costs to actually uh, for a baby to be born prematurely. And we know that the Every time a baby's born prematurely in Mississippi, it costs $58,000. It probably costs less to expand Medicaid for these women and actually prevent some of these issues from happening in the first place. Where can people find the March of Dimes report card? Absolutely. We, we want everyone to get involved in this issue and to take a stand by going to marchofdimes.org, being better informed, letting your policymakers know that you find it unacceptable that we have these disparities and these uh, rates for all women, really that are unacceptable with respect to pregnancy and childbirth. Uh, again, go to marchofdimes.org to get more information and, and to get involved in our, in our effort and our cause. Stacy D. Stewart is the president and CEO of March of Dimes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up, the newest version of a troubled Emmett Till historical marker is already drawing the wrong kind of attention. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. More than 60 years ago, Mamie Till Mobley made the bold choice to have an open casket funeral for her 14-year-old son. His body was unrecognizable after being beaten, lynched, and thrown in a river. Years later, Emmett Till's name remains in the news. Recently, people carrying a white nationalist flag were recorded on security cameras trying to film in front of a new memorial erected in Till's honor. As MPB's Alexandra Watts reports, activism by Till's family continues decades later. It's a Saturday morning, and about 100 people are gathered at Grabaugh Landing in Tallahatchie County for the unveiling of a new sign dedicated to Emmett Till. Till's cousin, Willer Parker, speaks to a large crowd. And where there's progress and success, someone always pay a price. Some pay a greater price than others. It's the fourth sign to stand here. The previous three were vandalized. This summer, a photo went viral of three people near the old bullet-written sign holding weapons. I wasn't so much angry as I was hurt, but my first thought was, what was their logic behind it? What made them feel like, oh, this is what we want to do, this is something we need to do? Erica Gordon-Taylor is another one of Till's cousins. She's here with her mother, Ollie Gordon. Ten years ago, they started the Mamie Till Mobley Memorial Foundation. Today, both are wearing pink shirts that read, lynchings still exist. Lynching doesn't just come by a form of hanging. 
uh, a lot of our children are being lynched daily, weekly, across the country. Um, where, whether it's you know through police violence or uh, gun violence. We are losing our baby. Another Till cousin, Priscilla Sterling, wears a white shirt that reads, A Mother's Love Never Dies. Uh, I experienced a racial ordeal till it made me talk to Mamie. Mamie was here in May of 2002, and I asked her a question about, out of all the years of being around Mamie, how could she deal with racism? How? And she just told me I need to be a warrior. I need to I need to be able to hold up. Sterling is part of the Emmett Till Legacy Foundation, which works to fight violence and provide educational assistance. The family wants to keep Till's story alive to encourage others to speak out about current injustices. Erica Gordon Taylor says reaching out to youth is important. When Emmett was murdered, young people got involved in the movement. And so when Trayvon Martin was murdered, young people got up and all across the nation you had marches and the young people out and about uh, calling for justice because they felt that that was someone else that they could identify with what had happened to Trayvon. You know, it's, it's a kid like them, so to speak. About 15 minutes down the road in Sumner, Mississippi, is the courthouse where Till's murderers were found not guilty by an all-white jury. The building still stands, and across from it is the Emmett Till Interpretive Center. Patrick Weems is the executive director. Every time we see a racially insensitive act, whether it be someone being shot and killed or whether it be the vandalism of a civil rights marker, Emmett Till gives us context that this type of behavior doesn't happen at a random, that this is a deliberate part of our past, and unless we really understand our past, we're going to continue to repeat it. University of Kansas communications professor Dave Tell wrote the book Remembering Emmett Till, which tells the story of how post-1955 Mississippi is still affected by Till's murder. Till's story is not a story of 1955. It's a story that started in 1955 and is now 64 years old and growing. Dave Tell recently developed an app that takes people to Emmett Till-related locations across Mississippi. She died, and she was to leave dialysis and get on the plane to go still fighting on the battleground to get some closure, some justice. Back at Grabaugh Landing, Ollie Gordon remembers Mamie Till Mobley's commitment to keeping her son's memory alive. She passed away in 2003, but Erica Gordon-Taylor says this isn't over. That's what his mother wanted. She wanted the Till name to ring for all eternity. She didn't want anyone to forget what happened to her son in Mississippi. Emmett was an only child. She was an only child. We're all cousins. It's up to our children and their children to keep the legacy alive in our family. Emmett Till's memory lived on through his mother, and now his memory and her persistence are living on with people generations later, and a bulletproof sign on the side of the road in the Mississippi Delta. Alexandra Watts, MPB News. Coming up, what's at the intersection of Memory Lane and Sesame Street? This week's book club, of course. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Robert Krulwich from Radiolab. We're told that smell triggers memories in the brain. So if you're in your car, let's try something. Roll up your windows and inhale, okay? There are some memories you cherish and others that just um, linger. But now here's a thought. How about contributing this barrel of aroma that is your car to your favorite public radio station? And you might even get a tax deduction. Thanks. Donate your car, motorcycle, boat, or RV by going to mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 
50 years ago, this coming Sunday, a cultural phenomenon came to television. Sesame Street introduced us to Big Bird, Bert and Ernie, Cookie Monster, and of course, Kermit the Frog. In her book, The Inside Secrets of Sesame Street, Lucille Burbank takes us behind the scenes of the longest-running children's show in the history of broadcasting. They addressed it by making the show so interesting not only to the child but to parents so that the parents would watch television with their children, which is always ideal. And they did that through celebrities and also by writing on two levels. They would make jokes that the parents would only get and then they would also write for the children. So the parents are chuckling and the child's wondering why. <laughs> what was the goal when Sesame Street was first formulating? What were they thinking it would be? What should it be? They wanted to reach the potential of television. They wanted to find out if television could really teach a curriculum and could be used for positive messages and make a difference in that positive realm. Children's television was not that great. Now, we did have Captain Kangaroo, and we did have Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, but their goal was to see if television could actually teach and make learning fun and as well as entertaining. Who was initially involved in the evolution of Sesame Street? Was Jim Henson one of the people at the forefront? He was because of his Muppets. And there was some concern whether they should have Muppets or not. And they invited Jim Henson there to come in. And he showed his Muppets and the producers, the directors, the executive producers, they were sold. And so was the co-founder, Joan Cooney, because they realized that the Muppets could teach and do things that human beings could not do. Who were the very first characters that lived on Sesame Street? Oh, my gosh. Well, of course, we know Big Bird and Carol Finney, who played Big Bird, also played... I don't know if everybody knows this, but he played Oscar the Grouch. And then there was Cookie Monster. And then there was the Count, Bert and Ernie. (laughs) They're such a pair. So they were mainly the first ones. (laughs) What are some of the biggest changes that have happened to Sesame Street over a mere 50 years? Its involvement has been impressive. It has maintained most of its wonderful bi-level writing, writing that goes to the parents and then to the children. Mainly, it has established a television model that is quite good at blending academic or learning or education with entertainment. That is a strong point. And the television model can be applied to children's programming as well as to adult programming. In terms of recently, when they joined HBO, they changed the show to a half hour. 
And that's understandable because there's more competition than when they debuted on November 10th, 1969. It has lost some of its essence, but it's doing the best it can. How far into the show or into the run of the show was it determined that it indeed was teaching children? Very early on because they had to do summative evaluation for the federal government because they were receiving funds. It was practically the first year they were seeing a difference, a big difference. And then as the years went on, they were increasing and seeing more and more of a difference until there were longevity studies done showing that children at a young age who watched Sesame Street as they were in high school, they viewed learning so much differently and they loved to read and they loved to learn. And that was a big plus, that longevity study. Dr. Lucille Burbank is the author of The Inside Secrets of Sesame Street. Thank you very much for being with us. Oh, thank you, Karen. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.